0: Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurleman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in ho- founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Tim Tischler, Principal Engineer at Wayfair. Prior to Wayfair, Tim worked as a Site Reliability Champion at New Relic and is well known in the human factors and resilience engineering space, which has a ton of applicability to data mesh. Per Tim, current work in general is overly action item driven. Every meeting must have a set of agenda items generated from it. You know, you must actually go do these five things from every single meeting to justify creating the meeting. This prevents people from having learning-focused meetings exclusively designed for context sharing. Human brains work differently between learning and fixing modes, and we ask totally different questions when we're in those two different modes. To be able to scale our knowledge sharing, we need to have the space to have learning-focused meetings. This is a recurring theme that we can't just add additional requirements on Teams, but need to allow people the time to learn new skills and ways of working. A good way to center learning-focused meetings for Tim is, whether they're show-and-tell or event-storming sessions, is via sharing stories. Human communication is literally founded on story sharing through the millennia. You think about The way that humans actually communicated, especially prior to writing, it was all through storytelling. (laughs) Tim's show-and-tell and and event-storming sessions have had extremely positive reviews so far at Wayfair. Tim sees ticket-based interactions, you know, just throwing requirements on someone's JIRA backlog or whatever, as very, very fundamentally flawed. If Team A gives Team B requirements, Team B just looks to close the ticket. Versus getting both sides in the room to exchange context and have a negotiation. That's where you're going to have much better results to actually figure out what both sides want and to make sure that it's not all one way asks. Tim prefers two modes of interactions over these ticket systems one is no human touch automated interactions, e.g., an API. The second is high-touch, high-context sharing interactions, getting those people in a room to actually exchange information with each other. Tim also believes we need to move away from focusing on technical signals towards business signals. You know, literal app uptime is pretty meaningless if the experience is broken. For resilience engineering specifically, you should apply learnings to each data product and the mesh as a whole. Part of that is a broad acceptance that you are in a highly dynamic and highly changing organization. There will be changes. People have to get used to that and that that's going to be okay. A few anti-patterns to resilience engineering that apply to data mesh are, first, a hub and spoke relationship model where one person is the key glue between different departments. This is bad at a human level and, and you know it can actually be much worse at a technical level if you build your technology in the same way you know conway's law second one would be business leaders pushing for metrics without sharing the specific context as you'll end up with completely empty and useless metrics that you're tracking the third is not embedding people building the platforms in the into the teams they are building the platform for, those people that are building those platforms really need to understand the workflows, and they need to be embedded in those teams, whether you know direct reporting or just working alongside them very closely as they're building out the platform. Tim also covered the difference between work as done, work as imagined, work as prescribed, and work as disclosed. Lastly, he talked about the need to make things not opinionated so they can be easily extensible and or composable. Uh, There is a little bit of background noise in this one as Tim was having some remodeling done. So uh, it didn't sound like it was too bad when I reviewed it. So uh, hopefully it won't be too bad on your end as well. So I think just in general, this is a great one to really get your brain flowing on how we can structure our our ways of working to really apply the learnings from resilience engineering towards data mesh. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Tim Tischler here, who's the principal engineer at Wayfair, and he's really helping to um, bring a lot of kind of interesting SRE DevOps type practices to Wayfair's implementation of data mesh. Um, But he's also going to share some of that knowledge of how to to take those things and what really uh, can map over and how you can think about Um, applying those principles to data mesh, which I think is very, very crucial. You know, Jmac has talked about CICD and things like that um, being very crucial to your data products implementation as well as part of that data as a product thinking and just, you know, also the idea of psychological safety and lots of different things. So I'm I'm very, very excited. And uh, I think this will be very useful for for a lot of folks. Uh, Tim, if you don't mind, if you could give everybody a little bit of an intro to yourself and your background and kind of how you got to here, and then we can jump into where we're going to talk about.
1: Sure. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, super excited to be here having this conversation. Uh, I'm Tim Tischler. I'm a principal engineer at, at Wayfair. I've been here for a little bit less than the pandemic. Um, I figured that, uh, uh, home delivery of, of furniture was a good place to uh, hang out uh, during the pandemic. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it, it sure has been a lift to, to Wayfair. Um, but yeah, prior to, to Wayfair, uh, and I'm, I'm new to the data space. I want to say that like front and center. I'm totally new to this. Uh, prior to, to Wayfair, I was at New Relic and I was a site reliability champion at New Relic where um, I was, uh, we had a group of site reliability champions that were sort of organizational level SREs. Uh, we didn't have a roadmap and we would say that the reality was our roadmap. So uh, we ran uh, incident retrospectives. We worked with teams on chaos engineering experiments. We, uh, I was a, a member of the NERF team, which was the new relic... Uh, I don't even remember what NERF stands for now. The incident response team for the big SEV1s and SEV2s. So really in the incident response space. Uh, prior to that, um, I had my, my own startup in the travel space, TripGrid, which is uh, still out there and, and going strong. Uh, and prior to that, I was a cloud infrastructure leader at, at Nike and before that, an early employee of HomeAway or Verbo. Um, and uh, there... Uh, we were doing continuous delivery and daily deployments when it was still something that, uh, uh, before it was the cool buzzword, when it was the, you're doing what? And uh, I, can, I can talk about that as well. Uh, so yeah, uh, mostly engineering side, I've gone back and forth between engineering and DevOps slash infrastructure slash SRE slash what do these words mean anymore? Um and uh, I uh, see a whole lot of that on the future for data mesh. What does data mesh even mean? Well uh, that's
0: that's yeah, I think what you're talking about there of, of you were there very early days when um, doing new approaches to of continuous delivery. so I think there's a lot of corollaries to applying that then to <laughs> how you think about data. Um, we talked a lot about, as well, you know, incident response, psychological safety. Um, When we were talking about kind of what you're doing at at Wayfair, it sounds like a lot of the meetings and things, even that you're in, you're creating a psychological safety net and that you're creating an environment where it's not us versus them, which has kind of been a, a challenge from a, um, producers and consumers of data standpoint of it is kind of either the consumers are like, hey, you're not doing what we need you to do. Stop breaking our data. And the producers aren't really able to understand exactly who's using what data, why, how. And so then they, they only hear the pain when somebody speaks up and says, hey, you broke our stuff. So like, how are you setting up that meeting structure? Because I'm, I'm even finding this that a lot of people aren't feeling comfortable when they get into the room of producers and consumers. How are you working around that to make it so that people can share their context?
1: So one of the challenges is modern work is action item driven. It's like, why are we in a meeting unless there are action items and we have to immediately uh, come up with what are we going to do as a consequence of this meeting? Whereas, uh, there's some really excellent literature and books from the, the resilience engineering and system safety space. And I'm blanking on the book, but I can, I can find it, uh, for, to, to link to, um, which says that that learning is different than fixing. The questions you fundamentally ask when you are in a learning mode are totally different than the questions you ask when you're in a fixing mode. Um, The questions for fixing are all about going down and trying to find the first thing that you can do that satisfies some requirement, so that you can write it down as an action item and satisfy it. And so there's there's a tendency to say, okay, here's the structure and here's the outcome of this meeting. And part of what I'm saying is like, wait, you're an expert in this piece of data. They're also an expert in this piece of data. This is where your data goes. Let's be curious. Let's (laughs) ask those open-ended questions and let's just do expert-to-expert show-and-tell of what our life is like uh, working with the, the same data in the stream at various points. And that's as far as we've gotten so far. We're not even into the next steps, but those conversations are great. They are amazing because people get engaged because they are subject matter experts all up and down these data pipelines. We've got the expertise in this domain of data, and they are interested in how people actually use it or where it comes from or what the challenge is. And, and this is nothing more than building common ground. I don't know what's next. And, and some central folks, and I'm sure this drill in the back is probably pretty noisy at this point, Having some some remodeling done in the next room, um, but we don't need a structure yet. Just share your stories because, like that's that's how uh, that's how people process information is sharing stories with one another. So let's just hear the stories of how we all work with the same domain of data, and then. Uh, central folks who I'm having these conversations about facilitating more with are like, and then we'll tell them to do this and this. And I'm like, maybe, maybe they'll tell us, maybe they'll bring the problems to us because we're, we are uncovering all of the problems and challenges in a shared environment of curiosity. Maybe the group will be the one driving what needs to happen next. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I I think the, People processing info by sharing stories isn't that like the um, way that humans have passed on knowledge for for millennia and millennia and you know tens of thousands of years. So um, and it's kind of funny because I, I didn't really think of it this way, but that's kind of what I'm trying to do with the podcast of just sharing a bunch of people's contexts, and so that we can find the through lines and say. Hey, we might try this. We might apply this. Um, I, I really like that. And um, have you had um, kind of pushback around a, let's have a, a curiosity session or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I know there are people out there where they'll say, this will never work in my organization. And I kind of get that. But like at the same point, it's like, well, if we can carve, if we want to do data mesh, we've got to carve out maybe three hours a week to of people just to share context with each other. And then the more that you share that context, the less you have kind of one-off questions that don't really get you to where you want to go. So have you had pushback and maybe if you have what's worked towards getting people to give people the space to share their context?
1: I've had questions, but then every time we do any type of either the show and tell for data or event storming sessions. Um, I, I send out a survey of did you learn something? And I and I got this from uh, I think this came from John Allspaw's uh, uh, Etsy blameless guide uh, guide to blameless retrospectives um, of did you learn anything? Um, Would you come back for another one? And would you recommend this for other people? And so far, uh, in every time I've asked this in any of these these context-building exercises of of either variety, um, the answers are basically 90% yes for all three questions. (laughs) And what's really interesting is I haven't gotten a no across all three yet. Like one time someone was the one really delivering. Did you learn anything? No. But I would come back and I would recommend it. like, right on. Um, and and so uh, that's that's my feedback loop for knowing that there's value. If the people attending say they learned something, they would come again and they would recommend it, I'm letting them be the judge.
0: Yeah. So your net promoter score is pretty high is basically what
1: you're yeah. saying. <laughs> I like that. Um, but it's, it's also worth uh, keeping that up because in the nature of experimentation and, and trying new things, you need to know what, what doesn't work so that you can do something different.
0: Yeah. Well, and that you don't, kind of cargo cult it and go, we're going to say this, we're going to do the same thing over and over. And if it's not creating that incremental knowledge and things like that, exactly what you talked about, that experimentation and change is, is important. So, um, you know, lots and lots of different paths we could go down when talking about uh, blameless culture, as well as people are, are moving into um, doing you know, as the software engineers are learning about sharing their data and and that with data downtime and and issues and things like that, but uh, you know, as well as other aspects of SRE and DevOps, what do you think is the most interesting uh, path for you to to kind of talk about first, or do you think or the most important? Or
1: I don't know. How about this? So uh, before I found Data Mesh, when I was um, so when I got into to Wayfair, I was in a part of the organization and I was like, how do we know this is working? There's a pilot going out. And I'm like, well, there's no error messages. There's, you know, we've got monitor for latency and all of this. And I'm like, yes, but like with the broader network effect, how do we know it's working? And they're like, oh, I think Bob has a report. Hey, Bob, do you have a report? "Uh, No, I think Lisa has the report. I, I'm not sure. And it was just really hard to get the answer to these questions. Um, and and then we had multiple incidents in a row where the signal was not in the golden four um, the of error messages or increased latency. The signal that there was a problem was in the business uh, metrics of like how many containers are open or in a certain state in a a facility and that like hockey sticked. So I'm like, oh, we need to be using uh, business signals for monitoring. How do we find those? And it was just it it was hard, really hard. So I wrote this before I found data mesh. Uh, The story of the 21st century is decentralization. The stories of agile DevOps and cloud computing share a very common quality. Decentralization. We've learned that the central team of experts fielding a ticketing system doesn't scale and just serves as a bottleneck. What practices have enabled this decentralization? Cross-functional teams, short cycle times, fast feedback loops, monitoring, alerting, SLOs, SLIs, automated tests, schema versioning and validation, continuous integration build, self-service automation, and auto-generated documentation. Uh, We decentralized the work uh via central apis. And so that was the frame that I was out looking for when I found data mesh. And yeah. so I look back at that now and I, I'm like, oh that that was that was good.
0: <laughs> it's It's kind of one of those things of uh, a lot of people have said they were trying to attack, certain issues, uh, on a one-to-one basis and saying, oh, we're going to try and fix this issue. And then it caused another issue versus with data mesh. It's, Hey, here's a complete picture of how we might approach all of these. And yes, you're still going to have your challenges, but here are the challenges. And they're kind of known unknowns instead of, you know, unknown unknowns of, of that and that there's shared language mm-hmm. and, and a shared common approach. So, um, yeah, so I mean, you were like you said, you were kind of early at Verbo with the the continuous delivery side. Where do you see a lot of the the pitfalls, the likely pitfalls from uh, starting to try to do this with data? Is it just that it's building this muscle and the understanding? Is it the tooling side? Is it the kind of historical? non-collaborative nature between producers and consumers of data, like where, where do you think that we're going to have the most pain points in most organizations? And if you've got uh, ways to, to help address those awesome, but even just telling people, Hey, you're going to have pain here when they feel that pain, they don't feel like they're alone.
1: So that that's helpful. So a couple of things. One is like, I'm sure and and we're already seeing it, of what does data mesh mean and how is it going to, as it becomes the big popular buzzword, like uh, DevOps meant one set of practices once upon a time and that basically boiled down to someone from dev and someone from ops sitting together and having a conversation. And somehow from that, it turned into uh, certifications and tons of tooling and like this whole ecosystem business around it where at this point uh, there are people that are still in pre-DevOps modes that just labeled their sysadmins DevOps. And great, now we're all doing DevOps because we labeled our sysadmins DevOps. And it's like, well, that's not actually what it means. So that's one, one challenge is just, as this becomes a bigger buzzword, we know it's going to happen, but but it, it's it's unfortunate. The other part is yes, it, in the organization and actually doing the work, it's getting the getting the organization to think in new structures. Um, I see business leaders wanting to. Um, Collect certain metrics, they push these metric, they write these metrics down as if they understood the system, they hand it off to somebody who then goes and talks to a bunch of other people. Hey, we need these metrics, and they don't understand if this is a request, what the questions are, what the context is, and I I watch folks instrumenting metrics that don't align with the domain's data models because, well, that's what the leader's asking for is this metric. So where is the space? How do we get the right people in the room um, to have these conversations about modeling their systems, understanding the data, understanding what's important and tying those to the business outcomes that we all care about? rather than just passing on, uh, you know, the request for metrics as requirements. Uh, Early on, I had a a success that was a big light bulb in trying to figure out how to get... uh, There was a data problem bouncing through our ecosystem and bringing the producer and the consumer together in a meeting, introducing them, and then it turned out that the producer needed to make a change and the consumer needed to make a change and then it worked because at that point it was a negotiation. But when it's requirements passing through multiple layers of people, it's a requirement, it's not a negotiation. So it, it just keeps going back to um, at New Relic as an SRE, uh, I had a... a of framing of these problems are easy as long as you get the right framing of the problem in front of the right people in the right room. And I'm totally aware that the word right is doing a ton of heavy lifting, a (laughs) a mountain of heavy lifting in that sentence. And at the same time, things that have been uh, really challenging problems for a long time. If you can get the right people in the right room with the right framing of the problem, um, things get easier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, like you said, right. Is doing a lot of work there, but I think it's also the number of times that, the, the kind of special sauce of data mesh is, is getting people to talk to each other. Um, uh, had an, uh, an interview with Danilo Sato and Andrew Harmel law. And literally at the end of it, they said, uh, you know, if there was one thing that I could tell everybody, it's just talk to each other, <laughs> like just have the conversation, stop trying to do this all via technology, like the number of times that people challenges are they're trying to solve it with technology, it just doesn't work. Like, and, and it's not scalable because it is that one off it's, it's, or that you didn't understand the requirements. And I, I can't tell you the number of times when I've tried to tell somebody here are, here's what I'm trying to get to And here might be one approach and they go, okay, so Scott said to do this in this way. It's like, no, that's unapproached. Like here's where we need to get to. And like that, even that communication, people are used to that action item checklist, like you said, to try to go, okay, what are my next steps? It's, Hey, we're trying to get to here. And then we need to reframe people's ability to say, oh, let's come up with our way to get there and, and give people, I just had, um. Uh, Jessitron, Jessica Kerr on as well. And she was talking about.
1: She's fabulous. I can't wait. I have not heard that episode and I am a huge fan. So I am super excited.
0: But she said, don't give people autonomy, give them agency. Autonomy is you go figure it out. Agency is here's where we're trying to go. Let's work together to get there. But you have the ability to choose. Yes. And that, that was something where I was like, oh, yeah, that does make a lot of sense here. And I think that's what you're, you're kind of circling around a lot.
1: One of the things along these lines that that's kind of taking that idea and turning it into a heuristic for something that is really tactical, um, our, my goal for the data teams that I'm working with, and, and it's a process, we're not, you know, snapping our fingers, and boom, we're a data mesh. This is a journey. This is, this is There are still plenty of software companies that are pre-DevOps in their, in their thinking, but we need to have two classes of interactions. It, uh, right now, everything is done with a ticket, with a context written in the, in the ticket, and that's this mushy middle. Uh, our goal should be to have two classes of interactions automated self-service, no-humans-in-the-loop API-driven interactions, or high-context, high-expertise, refer recurring cross-functional interactions. Those are the two the, the two polarities of our interactions between teams. Um, and, and I see the ticket-driven culture with just enough context to solve just this one problem in the way that I think it needs to be solved as insufficient on both directions. Fully agree. Either make it an API and make it easy because the, the thought work has already been done and it's it's something more concrete or be in those places to have the, the high context, high expertise, deep conversations that then lead to generative problem solving from multiple perspectives.
0: And and give people the space that they can have those meetings and that it's not, oh, this is pushing out these other priorities. It's like, no, this is a priority and we need to make the space for it, whether that's office hours, whether that's a show and tell, whether that's just being like, hey, you've got these many hours that you want to budget towards it. Um, you know, and, and if, if you're if people aren't coming to you, maybe that's also a metric as to Either you did it so, so well or people aren't consuming it or, you know, but then you might be able to then start to use that time to start to learn from other teams and, and or collaborate more and have those kind of cross domain collaborations more. So I, I like a lot of that. Um, it, you've obviously, you know, seen a lot of people doing things probably the uh, a not great way. Um, from having been at a vendor that was helping people to to uh, with a lot of their um, major incidents and things like that, um, what if you had a few nuggets of advice around like what paths would you try to avoid that might be a, a shiny path but are very much not a happy
1: path? Ooh, that is an interesting one. That is a really interesting question. As you build a platform, um, I I like the concept of sort of field product management, that when, when somebody is building a platform, they need team members who are expert in that platform to go and embed themselves deep in the user's territory to do work and understand work um, to take back as as the roadmap for their team's product. Um, I think there's a whole lot of of great product managers out there that uh, whose interactions are primarily with the end customers of the organization, and so. How do we bring their expertise and ways of doing things back into uh, technical program or product management? And how can we also um, use the fact that our subject matter experts and our users aren't on the other side of, of a web page and, and far away, but they're our coworkers? We can go work with them for a while. We can understand. uh, There's a great thing that clicked in my mind from from Human Factors, which is understanding the distinction between there is always a difference between work is done, work is imagined, work as uh, uh, prescripted, work as disclosed. Those are all four very fundamental different things that overlap but are not the same. So if if you're a product manager, you can imagine what people are doing with your, with your tool, but that's work as imagined, that's not work as done. You can go and talk to them about how do you use this? And they'll tell you some things, and that's work as disclosed, it's not work as done. And then you can tell them, you need to go and do step one, step two, and step three, and this is how it's done, and that's work is prescribed, not work is done. It's understanding work is done, like really going out and embedding with your teams and doing the work using your tool that helps build a great platform.
0: Yeah, uh, th- there's an episode that, as of now, is unreleased um, with uh, a couple of folks from NAV in Norway, and they're doing the um, it's the kind of Department of Labor relations, and you know they're they're very big about upskilling their people and making sure that people can find uh, jobs, unlike <laughs> the U.S. systems for a lot of these things. But um, yeah, what they said was they they're even just saying, "Hey, here is here's where we we need you to go. We're going to watch you do what you would do to get there, and then we're going to work with you in your workflows to." Remove as much of the toil as possible, but we're not even gonna we're not even gonna build anything ahead of time. We're gonna say here's where we need to go, and we're gonna watch you, and we're gonna do this across multiple teams. And then the teams that also are the ones who are stepping up to participate are the ones whose needs get met the most and the closest because yep. they're the ones that are the first uh, that are, they're building the the core platform around. You know, they you don't want to build this stuff as one-offs you want to be able to make this broadly applicable but yeah i mean i think i think those concepts really overlap a lot and and a lot of what you're talking about is just more one to or more human to human uh communication and that that can be difficult across time zones it can be difficult across uh different things and you know there's some documentation aspects that can work but A lot of what you said as well is like automated documentation and things like that. I think especially when you think about change management and you think about there's going to be a change upstream, who's that going to affect downstream and how you can make that something that actually like is communicated automatically. Um, And so it doesn't necessarily disrupt people's workflows, but that they can then immediately ask the person and they know who to ask. They're not saying it is this, you know, Sally's report or Bob's report or, you know, whatever. Um, So uh, what, so I guess one thing that we talked about a little bit that we've, we've talked around a bit is this blameless culture. And I think especially with how new Application developers are to sharing their data in in a good way. You know, you mentioned a conversation you had when you were saying uh, the conversation about what is good data. and We haven't seen good data. We haven't seen good data practices because it's not really working for anybody anywhere. So, um, like, how how can we instill that? that concept in everything that we do around data mesh, because data mesh to me, the reason why I got excited about it in the first place is that it's a high empathy. uh, It's a high empathy framework of working together and collaborating to, to achieve actual results. It's not just kumbaya, but it is very much about, Hey, we have to work together and trust each other and enable each other, empower each other, you know, give that, that agency and that trust. So, like, how do we get to a place where people are so used to their data breaking that as soon as they're like, "Well, we now have to trust these people who've been breaking our data the whole time," it's like they didn't know. But you know, like, how do we get there? How do we, how do we address past trauma so that we can move forward in in a uh, good way?
1: That is a great question. Um... I, I love the interest, the incident retrospective format of not doing the five whys and, and going down that path, but having everyone that was impacted uh, in, in the, the incident tell the story from their perspective, because these systems are so incredibly complex nobody can know anything other than what's right around them in their local point of view and so kind of the point of, of blameless the blameless culture is to acknowledge and realize that as we move in different and look at different points of view across the the organization everyone is acting locally everyone generally is is is, acting in the, the best interest of the org. And a lot of the problems are in the way the organization is structured. And those things, those organizational concerns are are a huge part of what makes work difficult and work very hard. Um, and so it's, it's really hard to hear someone's story uh, when it is told in a, high trust environment and be that angry with them. Yeah. Or be that, that, that blaming because it is, again, it's the stories it's in those stories that empathy is built. Um, yeah. and so it's listening to the stories.
0: I, I, I think this is, uh, kind of a, another thing that comes up a lot in this, especially if, um, I've talked about this, you know, I talked about this with, with, uh, Jessatron about, uh, the application engineers, application developers, aren't able to know what their changes are going to break. And they—they they, we haven't provided them with a way to test that, to know that, to, to deal with that in, in a way where they can still evolve their application without breaking things out from underneath people. And so they can't have empathy for the downstream because then it sends them into analysis paralysis because they can't really know so with that happening you really are in in a place where you have to continue to like you said act locally and do your job and so now we're we're looking to empower them with that knowledge and if we're empowering them correctly and they're still just not caring then there's an issue in, in company culture and, and things like that, but if we give them the ability to care, then most people will. Most people will, um, will start to try to alter their behavior, but we also have to give them the space when it comes to um, time and resources and things like that, where we can't just say, here's yet another work thing to throw on your plate. Um, Yeah, I think, uh, so uh, one question that keeps coming up over and over in most conversations around people that are implementing is, what tool do I use to solve this? What tool do I use to solve that? From having been in that CD space, from having seen so many of these incidents, like, where I'm not asking you to, to recommend tools or anything, but like, where do you think that line should be drawn versus where it's constantly drawn of we're, especially in us companies, we're trying to spend our way, uh, buyer, purchase our way, basically to out of, um, out of challenges versus spending the time to build the, the people and process side to where it needs to be. Like, where have you seen people doing that the right way or, or how would you kind of draw those distinctions I, I know again it's it's kind of a big big question <laughs> I
1: tend to be dropping
0: those on you today
1: that that is the question isn't it um so one thing that that I'm just an observation I don't know if this answers your question this doesn't answer your question at all it, it it's close but it's how can we build structures with our teams and our ways of working that are resilient. Um, I am, in so many ways, uh, flaky and inconsistent and have a ADD mind that when I was running teams, and I'm a I, an individual contributor now, when I was running teams, I had to plan my organization around my flakiness. <laughs> and guess what that did? That made a resilient organization. So I one observation is, is like we know we 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 can have this conversation about we probably should be investing more in our people and less in our tools and investing more in expertise. And I think all of that's true. And I would, I would, I can talk about that. Um, But also accepting that we are in a really dynamic high, with, with, with high rates of turnover, high rates of change. So how can we organize and structure our world so that the loss of any one person is minimal and that when people come into the organization replacing someone they have a functioning system there um one example of this is having a in a in a previous life we had a again it comes back to cross-functional teams we had a cross-functional team of all of the stakeholders that would meet for an hour every week anyone could bring their concerns about about the the space and we we talked about things. If any one leader left, their replacement would know, oh, here is this meeting that I need to go to every Monday at 10 o'clock with QA and operations and engineering and product management and user design about this space, I guess I'll go. And that team held the memory of the relationships, the connections, what was going on, et cetera. Whereas when there's a leader who who manages the world via hub-and-spoke relationships where they're the hub, when they get replaced, whoever comes in next has to completely rebuild the organization because it just fell apart. I, I just realized uh, not long ago that through turnover, uh, one part of the org had totally lost its relationship with another part of the org because Julie and Tom held that relationship. And then Julie quit and Tom moved over. And I later, in, in, in digging through threads of, of what happened and, and how is this, Tom was like, oh, yeah, I guess I moved out of there. I don't know who took that over. Did anyone? I'm like, no, no one did. No one did. Because two individuals held the relationship between the org rather than a resilient group that could withstand losing a person and plugging someone else back in.
0: Yeah, I had this, I managed AWS costs for a public company and I built the relationship uh, I was in the engineering org and I built the relationship with with finance. And finance, I had empathy with them and said, okay, what they there are three things, the top three things that that finance does not want or the top three concerns that they have are surprises, surprises, and surprises. Right. And then number four is you're spending too much money. <laughs> uh-huh. So I minimized the surprises. And so then they weren't nearly as concerned about if we were spending more money, because I could go in and say, here is why we're spending more money. Here I'm I'm coming to you ahead of time, right? Like this is where if you get to a, a good functioning organization of we're making these changes, it's going to break your your the data model around this, but we're going to work with you to transition you from this version to the next version. And this is why it, we're doing it. And here's how we're going to help you fix it. And here's, you know, X, Y, and Z that we're going to work with you. And you're going to know ahead of time. And that, you know, traditionally data consumers haven't wanted to have uh, anything change because anytime any, anything changes, it broke everything. And we need to figure out that that ability for data consumers to understand, you know, dynamism and that that they're going to have to be uh resilient to changes as well because those changes are going to happen but mm-hmm. i think that's i think what you said really makes a lot of sense of like we need to have resilient systems and we need to have resilient people and so conway's law which which comes first you know but like we need to build that resiliency in to make this actually scale right and and resiliency i think comes from empathy and and understanding and i mean you'd know this far better than i do you have any 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 uh key points that you would or or key works that you would point people to as well for for resiliency
1: oh gosh uh yes i i have i have a huge number of of uh (laughs) references uh probably too many and too big um but uh One great starting point is um, Sidney Decker's uh, Field Guide to Human Error. Um, Yeah. Uh, Field Guide to Understanding Human Error uh, is a great starting point for the human factor space and showing why... uh, uh, the concept of a singular root cause in a complex system is is uh not the most useful model of of failure and for what uh what resilience actually means um there's also a paper which is really um heavy reading for for new folks to the space uh from dr david woods which is um Uh, a theory of graceful extensibility. And he's a a, uh, founder of resilience engineering asking the question, how do we build resilience into our systems uh, in a a way that models naturally resilient systems? What are the properties of resilience and and how do we approach uh, building resilience? And a huge part of of what his model is is around rep- uh, huh, reciprocity, of um, going outside of your lane to help your neighbors because that's how we adapt to unforeseen circumstances. and in in so many cases of resilient systems, when you look at how, It works on the ground. The system adapts because people on the ground close to facts and close to what we call the the sharp edge or uh, fast feedback loops with reality uh, start helping each other out. And that is resilience, is helping out your neighbor in crunch times or times of crisis or uh, places like that.
0: One thing that I would point to as well is pretty much everything that we've talked about here outside of a little bit about the way that we communicate as APIs. I don't think we've talked about technology throughout this. And this is actually really common in a lot of the conversations I'm having around um, kind of successfully implement or companies that are uh, on a the journey and moving forward successfully. Is the amount of times? Yes, technology is important to execute on the the stuff that needs to get done. And sometimes it's roll your own. Sometimes you can find things that you can go and purchase. And vendors, I would say, extensibility is key. The more that you can be extensible, and that you aren't, it's not a, a hard edge at the end of your product that somebody can. Build their own onto the uh, to extend your product a bit. Um, That's going to be the thing that's going to get you my recommendation and pretty much everybody else's recommendation in in this space. But again, we're we're not talking much about that technology aspect because I think Conway's law really has is proven a lot of this. But like the more that we can focus on the people and the process side and get that nailed um and and make that well and not even i I guess i shouldn't even say nailed because nailed means like stuck versus get that magnetized so you can move it all around the board or or the fridge or whatever but that there is that attraction and they're they're together but you can move it as the needs change um that's kind of the 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 message that's coming through from what i'm i'm learning from this or what i'm hearing
1: so and i would there's, there's another word. It's extensible, yes, and or, and, or composable, whichever way. And I, I don't have a good model for, for thinking about the difference, really, right off the top of my head. Um, but but uh, so often, we think in here is an API that does exactly this one thing that you want. Um, and nothing else. Whereas how do we create APIs and technology tools that either uh, act more like Linux tools? So here's one, here's another, here's a third. You can put them together in one, two, three, or you can put them together two three one or three two one, or you can make your own and put into the mix. How do we how do we do that? Because a lot of times, uh, what I see is great software systems that provide value, but come pre-bundled with too many assumptions about the user's use case to make them useful. And, and if it's tightly coupled um, with, with a concept that doesn't fit your use case, and you can't, de- you can't decompose it, um, and you can't extend it, then you go roll your own. And then that's where we we get to uh, siloed ecosystems that don't know how to interact because uh, we, we decentralized in an unintentional way, just basically because at the end of the day, this tool didn't work for me. And I had to find another way. I had to use my ingenuity and creativity to work around this platform that you built because it didn't work for me. And I didn't have time to put in a ticket and get it on your roadmap and wait you know, the quarter for you to get to it. So I came up with this hacky thing that uh, am I happy with it? No, but it works. It provides value. It got me unstuck. And now it's... It's here and it's, it's, it's part of our technical system from now until I get the time to uh, refactor it and move it back in, which we all know is basically equivalent to never.
0: Yeah, I, I've been trying to, to get people to work on something around a, especially that composable uh, aspect around data APIs. Like, what can we have as core, you know, API logic that people can build on top of and that you have like a core way to interact with it and core calls, but that you can extend it as well, or that you you have the building blocks to put things together. So you know you might only want one and three and you do want to build yourself that two in your example, or you you but you can actually look at what two looks like and go, oh, I do want to extend it in this way or change it in this way. And that there's even the examples out there in the blueprints and and just that. I, I think there's just a lot of white space here and trying to just do what we've done historically with data is obviously it's not working. So it's definition of insanity. So like, let's really think about how we can make this as easy as possible for people to get to a happy path. And there isn't a happy path. There are many, many, it, or maybe a non-bad path, right? And there's many, yep. many non-bad paths, but you know, you don't want to send somebody down the "here be dragons" path, or at yep. least equip them uh, uh, efficiently with, you know, a plus two sword of dragon slaying or whatever, right? Like that, you give them the the tools to be able to slay that dragon if they if they need to, but you also don't, you know, give them the tools to do that if they're if they're not going to face a dragon, you're not. You're not just giving them stuff that's not going to be really usable and and uh, that composable extensible. Side.
1: I like the idea of the data product with the input and output ports and configuration. One of the things that I've 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 seen and, and I work with are we've got a great Dev organization that you can go and say I need a new Java platform i need it to do x and i need it to do y i need it to do this and it goes and it bundles it for you and there you go your your custom your custom java build or your custom python build or your flink or your dataflow or whatever but none of them are opinionated about how do you declare your input and your output in the file system and so one of the things that we're experimenting, is this a good idea? I have no idea, it, it likely isn't. But uh, a couple of teams across the organization have agreed upon a file format to declare your output streams and your output schema. So now we're both able to uh, either use Buildkite plugins or Docker images that get pulled in that can do interesting functionality because they, they know where on the file system the output port definition is, and can do things based on it. So here's the schema, here's what we need, and, and uh, I think there's a lot of unexplored space in that territory of, uh, I, I love the definitions of input-output ports, be strict at that interface, and then be agnostic as to what's inside. And so then, how do we share that definition? And how do we let anybody build a tool that works within this ecosystem that can be reusable, that respects those contracts and those those uh, uh, interfaces of the data product?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's. I'm glad that you're blazing that path and I and I hope to see some blog posts or have you back on to talk about that because I think those are interesting learnings for folks. I think that's going to be something that's going to be really, uh, I, I want to see more people trying those things and just going, does this thing work? And that you're setting yourself up to test it and that you're not saying, we're locking ourselves to doing this. It's we're testing, does this work? And is this a good idea?
1: And I think a, a huge part of this, the, the overall uh, data mesh conversation is not to say that data engineering is doing it wrong. Um, it's, it's all hard. And the, the work that they do has such, requires such incredible expertise in the way we're doing it now and how we will continue to be evolving it. And at the same time, the, uh, the SRE folks have been through some things and tried some things that didn't work at all and tried some things that have, but not... We haven't done this yet applied to data. So um, no one has all the context needed it's a conversation between these two schools of thought because neither group has the expertise alone to get us to where we need to be. Uh, so I'm super excited about the space because there is so much exploration. And like it's uh, we're in a, a moment in data where it's Greenfield, where the future hasn't been written yet. We're all collectively coming to this can't be it, can it? What's next? And, and we have more questions than answers, which is great. Super, <laughs> super exciting time to be in the space.
0: For for somebody who's got that attitude, I, I fully agree. There, there are a lot of people who just want kind of a rubber stamp or or a you know a, a, a specific blueprint for this is exactly how you do it. Here's all the steps. And it's it's very dependent on your organization, but there's a lot of learnings about avoiding the bad (laughs) paths that we can share. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do with this,
1: this podcast. And thank you for, uh, giving us a community and pulling the community together to, to have the Slack channel conversations and to have the podcast. And I think all of this is super important, uh, for us to have that community to share with what we learn, what we do, our successes and what didn't work. And so, uh, uh, tip of the hat to you for that excellent work.
0: Thanks. I'm I'm, I'm I'm trying to create a space where we can be vulnerable because if we can share where we're struggling and what we think is working, um, but that we can say that ah, I haven't figured this out and that it's not, you know, a shame based thing of, oh, I don't have all the answers. Nobody does right now. Like no one, li- literally when I say no one, I, I'm including <laughs> Jamak. No one has all the answers right now. We're still figuring this out. And that's okay. Like there are some people who say, oh, you you can't say anything until you're fully done. No, absolutely not. And so I'm trying to create a space where we can be vulnerable and that we can say, hey, I'm I'm struggling with this, or uh, you know, I I don't know of anybody who's really happy with their their answer right now to data discovery. So let's start to iterate on that a little bit in the open and, you know, vendors, you can participate, but, you know, just trying to sell isn't going to fly well, but like those conversations are, are good to have in, in the open because then we have much more people contributing and everybody has this valuable context and they can, they can help us, to, to get where we want to go. So that that's the, the point of a lot of what I'm doing with this stuff. So, um, but I mean, we're, we're coming up on an hour here. So th- this has been super amazing. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to, at least in this one, I'm, I'm sure you'll, <laughs> uh, if, if you'll have it, I'll, I'll, I'd love to have you back on, you know, in the future, of course, but like, is there, is there anything that you think or any like kind of wise summation, I don't want to put that on you, but a- anything that you would, uh, kind of want to share with the folks that, that are kind of going down this journey as to what you've learned so far or, or your past experiences and, and where they, they can you know avoid those bad paths.
1: Um, no, just just we' talk to people. Um, I, I know that there's ways for businesses and organizations to fail by not being action oriented enough. I I get that, but at the same time, uh, it's it's building that empathy with the people on the other side of whatever perceived fences you have. That's uh, super important, and uh, yeah. So I don't have anything concrete, but uh, it, it's it's an exciting space to be in and. Uh, this totally is DevOps coming to data, and uh, I look forward to see where the industry takes it in the next in the next while. Uh, definitely, we should be thinking on timescales of, of you know the next decade, uh, because uh, DevOps is what 13, 14 years old at this point as a as a term. So uh, this isn't a uh, this isn't a short term uh, quick thing that we're embarking on.
0: We're, we're on the bleeding edge and the bleeding edge is called bleeding for a reason. Right. Like, sure. so um, yeah. And, and I would also say um, have those conversations with people outside your organization too, so that you can understand the context of, of what they're seeing as well. And that's, that's part of the reason for the Slack is to just, create the ability to find these people and talk to them and create those relationships. And I, I try and create one-on-one relationships between folks, but I know I found out that people are like, Oh yeah, I'm talking to these like 12 different orgs that are implementing. And it's like, Oh wow, that's awesome. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. people are just, so some people, if you speak up and make a little bit of noise about what you're seeing, whether good or bad or struggling with um, people will will come to you and and talk to you as well, that there's a lot of people who, for many different reasons don't feel comfortable being that vulnerable yet. And hopefully we can get there, but you know, sometimes even corporate communication guidelines say that they can't even say anything. So totally get yep. that. Don't don't want anybody to get in trouble, but, uh, well, Tim, this has been super, super uh, awesome. Uh, love talking to you always as usual. Um, where can people find you? What do you want people reaching out to you about what, what's kind of the best path for that?
1: Um, I am in your, uh, the data mesh, uh, learning community Slack channel. Um, I'm in a number of, of Slacks. I, uh, I don't tweet much. I think I, I see the, uh, the high quality conversations on Twitter, but gosh, it is such a slippery slope to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, uh To the worst kinds of conversations to the point that uh i i I really don't participate on it that much um but uh i'm i'm at timoteo t-i-m-o-t-h-e-o uh and twitter uh but i i don't i don't check frequently
0: yeah so okay well uh just well We'll drop a, a link, sir. I think I can do a link where people can literally just even jump directly into a DM. But Well, your name, people can just search in different slacks and, yep.
1: and find you there. And LinkedIn. I'm Tim Tischler at LinkedIn. in LinkedIn. So that works too. And I'm actually enjoying uh, back on social media. Like um, I hadn't gotten much use out of uh, LinkedIn for a while. But the data mesh conversation there is is surprisingly active and happening, and so I'm 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 I'll probably be posting some stuff uh, via LinkedIn on data mesh.
0: Yeah, that's that's it's there's some really good stuff out there. I just came across another great article today, and um, it's it's fun to see that you know there are some people that are just trying to tear it down because again, it's not a full blueprint, and we've kind of gotten used to being sold to as a full solution from a vision standpoint versus a here's how we can work. And so when people don't have that full vision, they're like, but I want to buy this. Just tell me how to buy this. Tell me exactly how to do it. It's like, well, that just hasn't worked for the last 30, 40 years in data.
1: So why do we want to keep doing it? Yeah, there's also... uh... I know we're trying to wrap up, but there's one more point to say, which is to the data engineers and folks in data engineering, some see this as scary. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean for my job? I, it's, it's change. And to them, it's like, no, we, we see how hard your job is and how challenging it is. And uh, what this is pointing to is actually really good because it will bring the job of the data engineer closer to the, the table with product and understanding customers and the business. This is See this as an invitation to uh, adding more value to the business and bringing your expertise closer to people making decisions rather than losing anything. Like the, the, the breaking up of the central data engineering silo only gets you closer to the decisions that that impact the organization. Uh, it it's it's it won't be in the next decade the, the you know ideal data meshed organization. Uh, the job of the data engineer will be no less important and will be more valuable. And more of a valued contributor to the organization.
0: Yeah, I, I think that I I fully agree, and I think what we're trying to do for them is to reduce their toil. So the the stuff that you're just doing that's uh you yep. know m- maintaining the pipelines instead of working with the people to uh, make the the right pipelines and with the right uh, information and and really. Bridging the and gap, answering
1: the right questions, like uh, the the having a seat at the table and helping the business and product understand what questions they need to be asking, and then providing that data to them is is super invaluable.
0: Yeah fully agree. So, well, again, Tim, as, as always, this is fantastic and look forward to learning more about the Wayfair journey and kind of more as you're learning as well going forward. So, uh, thank you, Tim. And thank you everybody for listening. I'd like to thank my guest today, Tim Tischler, Principal Engineer at Wayfair. You can find links to the resources that Tim had mentioned, the books and the um, posts and things like that in the show notes. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the data mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.